Father, we thank you again for the gift of salvation that we enjoy through Jesus Christ and the fact that you initiated the contact between yourself and us, that we were not seeking you, but that you called us to yourself. And this we call grace. And we ask that tonight, uh, through your illuminating ministry, we would be um, directed to understand further the nature of your gracious call to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Since we've had a, a week off, I wanted to uh, take this time to just run through a few things at the beginning, just to review and get oriented to uh, the call of Abraham. Um, your notes tonight include election, and then the thing that we have handed out tonight for next week will be the doctrine of justification. Week after that, which will be the last week before Christmas, of course, uh, Christmas break and New Year's, will be on faith. So we have three topics we're going to talk about by way of the truths that come out of this event called the call of Abraham. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of faith. Three great truths. And these three great truths are at the foundation of the gospel, so that's why we we associate them with it. So just to review uh, where we're going... um, these are the events. Last year we took up those four events, creation, fall, flood, and covenant. This uh, year we have uh, prepared for the call of Abraham, and now we're on the call of Abraham. And to each of these events we associate uh, doctrines or truths. And uh, just to again review and comment on the importance of approaching things this way, uh, as I said before, um, this, is, this class is not a substitute for a, quote, Bible class, um, nor is it a substitute for a class in, in more of these details of these topics. Rather, what we're trying to do here is learn to get a, a panoramic view of the progress of Revelation, to major on those events which the Scriptures major on, and to be able to, in our minds, conjure up through the power of imagination by concentrating on how God has reported these events to fill our minds imaginatively with what went on in these events and connect them to truth. Be able to draw out of these events the truths that the Holy Spirit seems to associate with them. For example, doctrine of justification election. You'll see tonight Paul in Romans over and over again associates those doctrines with Abraham. There's a reason for it. Because the things that are past are written for our understanding. So history was designed to teach. History is doxological. History is pedagogical. And because history is a, is a divine pedagogy, um, then that means that these events have teaching value to them. So just by way of review, I want to kind of get a running start into this doctrine of elections tonight by going back and looking at how we tie doctrines to these events in the past. To the, doctrine of, to the event of creation, we dealt with the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of nature. In other words, what is God? What is nature? What is man? And that is the element of the whole Christian worldview. If you get screwed up there, you can't build anything else. Because the doctrine of God, we said, was to create a creature that's difference. We listed various attributes of God. We said he is sovereign, uh, that he is holy, uh, that he is love, for example, and that he is uh, omniscient. And to those attributes, we corresponded attributes of man, that man has a choice, man has a conscience, 
man can exercise love, and man can know things. And we mentioned, as we went through that, that that's what makes man made in God's image, that there's a parallelism or a similarity between the man and God. And this is what is denied by 95% of our society today. Whenever the doctrine of evolution is taught, man is nothing more than an accidental arrangement of matter. That's all he is. And if man is nothing more than an accidental arrangement of molecules, then there's no such thing as real choice. And so let me review those four things. Four things about man that correspond to four things about God. God has personal choice. We call it sovereignty. Man has personal choice. We call it choice. But when we say man has choice, we're one of the few and last people in our society that really believe in choice. Now, it's ironic, but the biology that is being taught, the psychology that is being taught, the whole philosophy that is being taught today basically makes man a mess of molecules that are simply chemical motions in action. It's just stimulus-response. That's all it is. And what we think is choice really isn't choice. It's just something that flows out of chemical determinism. And physics and chemistry, that's all. There's no real choice. So, of course, you can quickly see that if there's no real choice, then what are the implications? We're not responsible. Um, so, man, we have to, on a biblical basis, defend real, bona fide, legitimate choice over against the chemists and the physicists. We come to conscience, and we have to defend the fact that man has a conscience, that he seeks moral absolutes for judging purposes. And that is because he is made in God's image and he corresponds to God's holiness. It doesn't mean that we have absolute perfection. It merely means that we have an instrument aboard that seeks to be oriented to some moral absolute, some place. That's what the conscience is. And that's what makes man, man. So we, ha we seek naturally a moral absolute. And, of course, on the modern unbelieving pagan view that you don't have any God, so if you don't have any God, then you don't have any infinite, personally wise, moral absolute. And then, once that happens, the second thing that happens to man is that losing his source of a moral absolute, he has to get it some other place. And what is the some other place? There can only be, ultimately, one other place, himself. And hence, therefore, you always have variations and permutations. Some people say, well, it's the 51% of the people, blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, it boils down to the fact that it's either me or God. It's either you or God. But if it's you and me, then what do we do with each other? Now we've got two would-be gods in collision. And, yet, and that results in chaos and violence. Because if you're going to be your moral absolute and I'm going to be mine, what do we do when we meet? We have no common ground. So this is what is so terrifying socially about abandoning a moral absolute. People think this is all theory. This is some theological, philosophical issue. It isn't. It's out in the sidewalks. It's in the classrooms. It's in the business world. That if you give up a moral order, then there are certain ramifications that have to occur like night follows day. So man loses his choice. Man loses his conscience. Then we come to love. No man can really love unless you're secure. If I am insecure, I'm not going to be concerned about you. I'm going to be concerned about me. And after I have my security, then I'll get concerned about you. And that's the whole problem with love. You can't get love going in an insecure environment. 
And if you don't have an environment that is controlled by a loving God as the background, then where do you get security from? Well, men try to generate security somehow from insurance policies to the Tower of Babel to uh, socialism to Marxism and so forth. We want to generate some sort of thing. That doesn't mean all these things are ultimately wrong. I mean, insurance was started by pastors in this country. But I'm talking about the wrong use of these things, the wrong use of government, the wrong use of these things as 100% security devices. There is no security in this world. And so therefore, you can't be any love. Love can't get going in an insecure environment. So there goes the third characteristic of man down down the drain. Then we come to the fourth and last one, which is man's knowledge. And that corresponds to God's omniscience. But again, if you do away with God, you do away with omniscience, you do away with knowledge, and in absolute sense, you've got to do away with human knowledge. Now, what we call knowledge is just neural activity in the brain. So, you can quickly see that once you abandon a biblical worldview, there are some very, very serious consequences that follow and set in. And we're just seeing them unravel in our society, and we look at this thing, and we look at something else, and we say, "Ooh, ooh, gee... Well, it is horrible to watch. It's horrible to watch your country unravel itself in front of your face. But unfortunately, it's given to us to live in the generation in which this is occurring. And the only thing we can do is go back and make sure that in our souls, at least, we have it together. And that's enough. And hopefully here and there we can make some changes. Hopefully here and there we can act as the salt of the earth. Hopefully here and there we can hold some ground. But if we lose our bearings and orientation, we're not going to be worth anything anyway. So this is the background. And so all of these things come out of this creation event. And to fortify our minds, we can think of God speaking those things into action. You can visualize however you, your mind does it. Uh, visualize Adam and Eve. Visualize yourself as being in Eden with God creating Adam from a pile of sand. Putting him together walking through the garden and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Feed your imagination with those pictures and then link them with these truths. Then we went into the fall. We won't go into all this, but remember we had out of the fall comes the idea that evil is bounded. This is a very new thought. This is something you're not finding outside of the Bible, that evil is controlled, evil has a boundary, that there are certain true coping strategies and we went through 11 reasons, 11 patterns of evil. Six why that are direct patterns and five indirect patterns. And we, we covered all those last time, last year. And then we went into the flood and we said, there's a picture of salvation. And the reason that picture is so important as a picture of salvation is in our time, religion, quote, end quote, I hate that word, religion is conceived psychologically. So when you use the word salvation, it translates here to somebody else as, oh, you're talking about how you feel. Oh, you're talking about some subjective religious experience. No, no. That's not what salvation means. And the way to correct it is, in your mind's eye, imagine being at the flood. Imagine watching the whole surface of the planet disintegrate with this ark, with the genetic pool of animals and humankind aboard that little ark floating around in a massive, massive water. That was judgment, salvation. Two oars occurred together, and it wasn't just psychological. It was physical. It was totally environmental. It was geophysical. 
And hence, therefore, in the future second return of Christ, it's not going to be a psychological event. It's going to be a physical event. And we have to fight this all the time because the pressure of the world around us wants us to make salvation just a psychological inside experience when that's not true at all. Then we came to the way at covenant and, of course, we prepared and set up for the call of Abraham. We've mentioned that we are basically talking about from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, that block of Scripture, and we've urged you to speed read it. Don't worry about details, but just speed read it if you've never read that part of the Bible before so you're acquainted with the unfolding drama of Abraham, his sons, and so forth. Now tonight, we're going to look at some of the texts to deal with the issue of election. So, we want to start by turning to Genesis chapter 11 because we want to get the big idea first before we get into the details. Let's review by turning to Genesis chapter 11 and looking at the motif of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, very, very important verse, because this gives the thrust of civilization in its pagan form. The sin nature of man, man in the flesh, Adam fallen, always produces a society that does this. And it's done on a very sophisticated and academic level, or it can be done in a normal, common, everyday sense. But the thrust the motive of the world system is described here in verse 4. Come, let us build for ourselves a city whose tower will reach unto heaven and let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. Which was exactly what God wanted them to do. That last clause, lest be we scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth, is a diagrammatic opposition to Noah, uh, Noah's covenant in Genesis 9 when God said, I want you to go into all the world. So that's deliberate, emphatic, and total disobedience. That last clause. And the, you notice, lest we. See, there's a negative purpose clause there. In other words, I want to disobey God, but I know that if I disobey his overt command, I've got to substitute something. So the whole rest of the verse, ahead of that last clause, lest we be scattered, is a replacement. There's where the idolatry comes in. You can't disobey God without creating a vacuum. The vacuum sucks in a replacement. So every act of disobedience is really an invitation to some form of idolatry. And in verse 4, it says that, and the key phrase there is, let us make for ourselves a name. In other words, we are going to generate, so to speak, the kingdom and a perfect security and everything out of our own finiteness. We will generate it. Then, contrast that with Genesis chapter 12, when God speaks to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, go forth and get out of the world system. Get out of that city that you're in. And then he says, in verse 2, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So be a blessing. So you'll be a blessing. But notice, I will make your name great. So there's a deliberate contrast between Genesis 11, verse 4, and Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Two different programs. One, the pagan program, and the other, God's program. 
In one, man tries to do it all. Man tries to generate the total answer. In the second program of God, God says, I have the answer, you may not know it all, and I will take the initiative. You'll also notice that Abraham doesn't initiate the action, even though verse chapter 12, verse 1, looks like it's coming after chapter 11, verse 31. Well, chapter 11, verse 31 is just the prior history, but chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3 is a summary statement, and we know from Acts 7 that at time of verses 1, 2, and 3 actually was in verse 31, the previous chapter. In other words, what I'm saying here is God called Abraham. Abraham didn't start any motion, didn't respond until he had a call. So God's initiative established this whole program that's begun in the Bible here at chapter 12. It wasn't Abraham looking to do it. It was God who intervened. And that's why we've labeled this year, as like last year we said the series was the buried truths of origins. And this year we're saying the disruptive truths of the kingdom of God. Because here the theme is that God disrupts, God interferes, God intervenes. Man has his plan and then suddenly God comes in and says, no, this is the way it's going to be. So, when we deal with the call of Abraham now, we're dealing with a divine interruption. Now, um, we, we talked a little bit about Abraham. Now, I want, want to, to get background on the doctrine of election. I want to take you to the New Testament. And we want to go to the New Testament where the New Testament reflects back onto the Old Testament. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul does with Abraham's life in Romans. In Romans chapter 8, first, you ever been in a Bible class where they never finished the book? Well, if you ever been in Romans, of course in Romans, they usually stop at the end of chapter 8 and never finish it. And it's because of some pretty tough stuff here after, Genesis, after Romans 8. But I want to just tonight spend a few moments to kind of give you an overview of Romans 9, 10, 11 um, uh, by way of a perspective on a call of Abraham here. Look at chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Look at the last two verses of chapter 8. Now, everybody quotes these. You know, it's... Pretty well known if you've been a Christian, going around Christian circles. I mean, you, most people refer to Romans 8.28, and everything following Romans 8.28 basically is saying the same thing. Uh, Romans 8, for example, 32. Uh, uh, Romans 8.33, um, I mean, Who shall bring anything against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he that condemns? And then you come down to verses 38 and 39, and there's a statement made in these two verses that's pretty dogmatic. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, it's that verse that leads into this three-chapter apparent diversion. Why do you think Paul does what he does in, in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, when he starts talking about Israel? He hasn't been talking about Israel in Romans 8. Why does he suddenly start talking about Israel and the Jew in Romans 9, 10, 11? Well, what's the story here? Why the, the seeming discontinuity? 
Well, if you think about verse 38 and 39, what is it an assertion of which if you were a Jew in the first century, somebody had said that to you, and you looked around and saw the uh, loss of Israel, the fall, the exile in 586, you knew that as part of your Jewish history, nation went down, you, even, the Jews that were living in the Israel Jesus day were very aware that this was a, a, a ghetto compared to the nation as it existed in Solomon's era. They always remembered the great kingdom of the past. Now, why, if you were a Jew, living and a reading Romans, nine, Romans 8, what might you think to challenge the truth of verse 38 and 39? What would be in your memory? What would be as part of your personal Jewish history that would tend to argue that you say, well, Paul, I'm not quite so sure about the statement you made in 38 and 39. Well, in 38 and 39, he's saying that God is always going to be protecting his elect ones, those that are in Christ. Now, if you're a Jew, what are you going to assert? Excuse me, uh, what about the exile? You let the nation down. This was supposed to be God's elect nation. You let Israel be conquered. Even in this day, was Israel free? She was under the foot and boot of Rome. So, excuse me, if God can't keep his promises in the Old Testament, what makes us think he's going to keep his promises in the New Testament? So there's a Jewish argument to contravene verse 38 and 39. Hence, therefore, he's got to deal with it. And that's what Romans 9, 10, 11 is all about. It's to clear away a misunderstanding of Jewish history that could have led to a very severe doubt and a challenge that God always does protect his elect. So that's why in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing witness that I have sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were a curse, separated for Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, and so forth, so forth, so forth. So now he deals with a Jewish plight, the Jewish predicament here, which could have been used as a counter-argument. Now in verse 6, notice how he answers it. He says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who were descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of flesh who are regarded as the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. So now he says, I contravene the opposition by saying that the promises of God given in the Old Testament were not given to all Jews. Those promises of endurance were given to those Jews who are genuine believers. And it's their destiny that God has been faithful to keep. So he says, you've got your eyes in the wrong terms of the covenant. And he goes back, therefore, to build a base to the correct understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham being the first Jew. And he points out in verse 8, verse 9, that Abraham had two children, but it was Isaac that was the one to the promise was given. Then he goes on to the next generation. Verse 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That there is a division in the second generation. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God is there. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I have mercy upon him when I have mercy. I will have compassion and I will have compassion. So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. His whole idea is that God promised to be faithful to those whom he called. 
And he says, you Jews, you think that God called the whole nation to perfect security for all of, all of time. You didn't read the fine print. God called those who respond to him. God called those who are the elect. God called Isaac. He called Jacob. If you try to give me the counterexample of Ishmael and Jacob, uh, Ishmael and Esau, that's not a valid argument because they are not considered to be, quote, the elect in the Old Testament. So is that, what is an argument here is it's a definition of to whom do these promises apply. So again, going back to verse, chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, that is a promise to all who are in Christ. And he says, if you're a believer, obviously, you're in, you're in Christ, and the promise applies to you. But you can't use the Jewish history counter-argument because that counter-argument is grounded on a false understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. And he goes on and describes the whole thing and comes back over to chapter 10, then goes to chapter 11. And finally, in chapter 11, verse 29, he goes through the Israel's history and then he says, he's, not, he's saying that Israel will not be erased from history. He's, he doesn't say that every Jew is going to be saved. But he says the nation Israel will be saved. There will be a remnant of Israel that will be saved. And verse 29, he says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God starts a work in history, he finishes that work in history and he is not going to stop until he finishes it. So, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so those now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they may now be shown mercy. In other words, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying in the future, all of the nation Israel will respond. There will come a day for Israel's great golden era. It's not behind her in Solomon's time. It's ahead of her in the Messiah's time. God has shut up all disobedience, and he might show mercy to all. Then after going through this very difficult section of Romans 9, 10, 11, look how he concludes in verse 33, 34, and 35. And I, I want to emphasize that because he's winding up this three-chapter three dissertation. And obviously there's lots of questions. Paul knew there were lots of questions. And he concludes by pointing to a characteristic of God that we mentioned last year. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then look what he says. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. There's that thing we talked about last year called the incomprehensibility of God. It's a corollary of his infiniteness. It doesn't mean there's a contradiction. In God's mind, there is no, there's perfect 100% logical uh, fit in God's mind. The problem is, we can't load enough in our computers, our finite limited computers, to understand how these pieces all fit together. And so he says, he says, it's unsearchable. His judgments are unsearchable and his ways are unfathomable. That's a corollary to Christian doctrine. And we can't say that we understand the whole plan of God. If we understood the whole plan of God, it would be claimed that we're omniscient. And that's precisely the pagan agenda. The pagan agenda has always sought omniscience for man. So we can't slip back into that as we try to understand a little bit about election. Notice again verse 34, 35, and 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Did we give advice to God? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory 
forever. And he ends in a peon of praise, Amen. So this is, his, this is the end of that three-chapter dissertation. Now he resumes in chapter 12, verse 1, which everybody begins to read again because we skipped over Romans 9, 10, 11 because those are hard chapters. And we slip from Romans 8 to Romans 12 and we quote all the time, I urge you therefore, brethren, mercies of God to present your bodies a living holy sacrifice. Forgetting that there's one introductory word there in chapter 12, verse 1 that depends on the last three chapters. What word is that? Therefore. The whole command to give yourselves as a spiritual sacrifice to God is contingent on being able to do it by faith. You can't do it by faith if you doubt that he's going to be honest to his calling and his promises. And for Jewish believers particularly, they're going to have a lot of doubts because to them, they've been the bad boys of history, they've been kicked around, and it doesn't really look like God kept money of his promises. At least to a first century Jew, he surely didn't look like he kept money of his promises. So, Paul deals with that because you can't believe if your conscience won't let you. You can't work up faith. Faith is a result of the Holy Spirit's illuminating the heart. And you can't make yourself believe it. The way you create faith is by listening to the Word of God. And just listening to it and listening to it, thinking about it, listening to it, thinking about it until it clicks. When it clicks, you can believe it. And so that's why he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in the light of the fact that the calling and the mercies of God are without repentance, the fact that God chooses to do a thing and he's going to bring it to pass, that's why he says, I urge you to present your bodies willing sacrifice. That would be kind of stupid to, to present your bodies willing sacrifice to a God who never finished things. Hey, I'm not going to risk that. Now go play with somebody else's life. Don't play with mine. So, verse 1 that is so popular in our evangelical culture is contingent on an understanding of this doctrine of election that God completes what he starts. So, if you've turned in the notes now to page 30, we'll look at it under four points. The first one goes back to something very, very fundamental and I want to emphasize this at the beginning because if there's one time when a lot of people get bent out of shape, it's in this area of the doctrine of election. And it's because in nine times out of ten, the whole discussion starts off on the wrong foot. In nine times out of ten, when people start talking, talking about this, they, they talk about election as some sort of idea over here, separate from everything else. And the point I want to make right tonight as we start, that underlying little clause in the third paragraph up from the bottom, never try to learn one piece of revelation isolated from the rest. Or you eventually at some point compromise the presupposition of biblical faith. The Bible is a system. The Bible is a coherent, systematic Revelation from God. You can't take a piece here and a piece there and understand it apart from the other pieces. And you say, well then, how do I ever get started? Very slowly. Because there's a process here of learning this piece and then reflecting on it. And it takes time. It takes years of reflection. And then God, through circumstances in your life, will take very practical pressures to, to come force you back to where you have... We, we get stripped out of all of our fleshy gimmicks 
and then you're standing there naked before him, and then, gee, maybe I should do that after all. And yeah, after everything else has been knocked out, then we decide we're going to do that, and you know we get credit, we're so spiritual. But it's only because he's forced us into a corner. That's why we did it, or that's why we trust him. Well, in, in, in this area of election, we want to realize that you have to consider it as part of the whole, and the easiest way of doing that is to think in terms of the literal call of one guy out of the city of Ur at 2000 BC. It's the easiest picture. So I'm going to present it under four things to kind of help here tonight. The first one, on page 30, is creation rests upon the doctrine of creation. The, I mean, election rests upon creation. So you can't have one without the other. And if you'll read with me uh, that paragraph, Abraham came out of the pagan heartland of Mesopotamia. The two cities where he lived, Ur and Haran, were known as centers of worship of the moon god, Nanar Sin. Those are two different names of the moon god cult. As I showed in part two of the series, such paganism buries the memory of ex nihilo creation along with the creator-creature distinction, that is, the nature of what God is. All reality is viewed as one continuous scale of being. History appears to be run for a time by, say, a moon god until another god supplants him or her. Behind these wars of the gods lies the ultimate mystery of the tablets of destiny or fate or chance. That's the pagan mind. If you can't have a personal God in charge, because you don't have an infinite personal God, then you've got to have something in charge, and it's either chance or fate. And usually you read in pagan stories about the tablets of destiny. Um, you go into the, um, uh, the famous film epic, 2001 A Space Odyssey, that was done, still one of the great classic films of all time. And uh, you'll see that at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, Stanley Kubrick has this thing that looks like the tab- the, uh, one of the tablets of the Ten Commandments going through outer space as though that, that, that is controlling man's destiny. So somewhere you have to have a controller. And so usually in paganism, it's tablets of destiny or fate or chance. That's hence the horoscope business and so forth. Now, to respond to God's call to leave the domain of the moon god... Abraham had to have believed that God was creator of all and therefore his message of election was secure from any interference. Now let's put some shoe leather on that. You are a businessman, Abraham. You are in Ur. If your life is controlled by the moon god and what the moon god decrees for your city, your city-state and all your business transactions are going on and you've lived your whole life there, you've got everything planned out, what you're going to do, this and that and so on, And then God tells you to do what he did Abraham in Genesis 12, get out and go to a land that I'm not going to tell you about. But I'll show you how to get there. Now, in terms of the pagan mind, what are you doing when you leave the city that is controlled by the lunar cult? Leaving the area. What do you run into or the danger of? You're going into another territory. The moon god doesn't control the other territory. So you see, the gods in those days were geographically limited and everyone knew that. So for Abraham to walk out of the city of of Ur over to the city of Haran, over to God knows where, meant that the god who he trusted had to have something different about them than the moon god had. This god that called had to have absolute and total control over all geography, over every area. 
His sovereignty had to be universal, not local. So right away we know that to answer the call, Abraham had to have an idea, he had to have broken totally in his heart with a pagan worldview. He could not have believed in the continuity of being and operated on the basis of that call. Somewhere, God the Holy Spirit illuminated his heart to who and what God was. And it's this illumination that occurs at gospel hearing. This has got to happen before we can trust in Jesus Christ. Some of the false conversions that we have in our churches, I'm convinced of the fact that Jesus is presented as some sort of a guru, a sort of panacea. And, and what happens is that people don't ever think of Jesus as really God or sin is really a violation of a legal relationship with this God of the universe. So having a very trivial and low view of God and a trivial and low view of sin, you're going to have a trivial and low view of Christ. So you can use the name Jesus, you can use the term Christ, we can talk about trusting in Christ, but if the content of who and what God is isn't there, you're going to have a false conversion. It's not going to last. It's going to fade away. It's going to be a hippo for the moment. And so right away we're faced with the fact that election, the call of God, isn't the call of a moon god. It isn't the call of chance. It's the call of the sovereign God of the universe. So it rests upon the existence of the creator-creature distinction. The whole idea of election is simply that this, the ex nihilo creator, is the ex nihilo creator. And God chooses to do it this way. He chooses to make the rainbow with those colors. That's his choice. He chooses to make chlorophyll green. And he chooses to have Abrahams around. It's his right. You may not like that. We may feel offended. But if we feel offended, that which is in our heart that feels offended, you know what it is? It's a prideful desire to be God. See, a lot of people don't get the point. The, the doctrine of election is like a two-by-four that comes up along the side of the head and bang, wallops you in realizing that he calls the shots, not us. So that part of it rests upon election. Now, we want to go further and, and, and understand on page 31 a little bit about what Paul meant when he said, oh, the depths and the riches of God, they're unsearchable are his ways. And we want to remind you on page, the first two paragraphs on page 31 about the fact that God in his nature is incomprehensible. Remember last time we dealt with the fact that the creator-creature distinction. We said that God has certain qualities and we said we have to be careful about how we talk about God and his qualities, his attributes. We said, for example, if you start talking about God's sovereignty you have to remember that there's not some abstract quality called sovereignty shared by both God and man. That's not the point. Sovereignty is God's choice, and we are finite creatures, and we have our choice. And this choice is similar to, but not identical. Our choice is similar to God's sovereignty, but our choice is not equal to God's sovereignty. And we always have to remember, every attribute of God is that way. And so, that's what we're talking about here. 
God, our ideas are similar to God's ideas. Where they're the creature version of them. But they're not equal to God's ideas. If our ideas were equal to God's ideas and identical, we'd have omniscience. So, when we talk about God causing things and so on, we have to be careful. So, if you look at the text now, on page 31 of my notes, uh, let me go through these paragraphs on, on, on uh, election and creation. Like Abraham, we have to leave our pagan notions behind. It must be understood against the backdrop of creation. There is a personal sovereign behind origins and history. There are two levels of being, creator and creature, not one. The creator's quality of sovereignty cannot be identical to the human creature's quality of choice. Our choice is only a finite replica of God's sovereignty, so we ought not to visualize, and here's the important point that gets stuck in all these arguments, we ought not to visualize God's control over us like, say, some deterministic chemical cause-effect reaction. Such sub-biblical imaginations always erase personal responsibility because, like Nimrod, they cannot conceive controlling without coercion. God can control us without eliminating responsibility. Now, how he does that, I have no earthly understanding how he does that. And you've seen this very glimpses of this in your life, if you've lived a Christian life any length of time, you know that God puts you in a certain situation, at a certain time, in a certain place, such that you'd run into this person who had that background, and all of a sudden you see three or four things happen. Now, did you feel a secret voice telling you, oh, right, 150 feet? You, you didn't hear any call. You did, there was no computer plug-in telling you to get there. You, in your consciousness, just did it. You were there. You just happened to be there. And this other person just happened to be there. How did that happen? Well, that's, we don't know how that happens. And that's what we're talking about here with election. It just, it, he pulls it off. He does it daily. It's how he sovereignly controls without coercion. And that is what Paul means when he says, how unsearchable are his ways. Now, the, the average person, you talk about God's sovereignty, they think, oh, God, is he sovereign? Then, then we're just puppets. Well, if God would be like us, the only way we could get total control is have puppets. You see that fallacy in the imagination? What they're doing is they're trying to visualize how you could control something, like you'd control something. Well, that's not the point. You aren't God. It's, the issue is how God controls someone without coercion. We can't do that. God can. The nearest illustration to how, in our own realm, to sovereignty, is think of yourself as an author of a book. Do you control the plot of the book? Yes, you do. But if I am a reader of your book, do I get the impression that this character in your novel is being forced to do two things? No, because the book reports that they're free to do this and this and this and this and this is how it runs out. You as the author are able to somehow make your characters do the plot, aren't you? Well, then, if you can do that with a book, why can't God do that with history? We're in his book. And he makes the plot come out that way. Then he does it somehow without coercion. All right, so that's what we're talking about in that area. So, let's look at uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 21.
Paul uses an illustration that has in its background the fall. In verse 21, does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he prepared before his glory, beforehand for his glory? Now that that image of the potter and the clay wasn't original to Paul. Paul got that out of the Old Testament. So let's go back to where he got it. Jeremiah chapter 18. I want to fish for a little thing here. Again, a Jewish reader of Romans would have known this. The modern New Testament Christian wouldn't. In Jeremiah 18, verse 2. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. And I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Now, what happens to the pot that's being made? Notice the text. He is making the thing on the potter's wheel, and it gets screwed up. So he has to remake it. Now, in the analogy, what has the human race done? When it was first made in creation, what intervening event happened? The fall happened. So the human race got screwed up. It got marred. The potter, the clay has been marred. So the, so, the doc, so the election has in view not only creation, but it also presupposes a fall. So that you have the lump of clay, you have the event of the fall, and now the clay is all messed up. Now what election asserts is that God comes in and he can remake the clay. And so he remakes the clay, and then he leaves some of it. That is what election's all about. Now the question is, how does that come off? How does that happen? Well, let's turn back now to Romans chapter 9, and we'll see something about the verbs that are used in that passage. In Romans chapter 9, if you will look at verse 22, 23, and 24, those who are real hep on conjugating verbs, notice something. Verse 22. What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath... Now, what is the voice of the verb prepare in verse 22? Active or passive? Passive voice. Passive voice, the subject receives the action. So the vessels, and it, it, the Greek also has a middle voice, which is reflexive. So you have prepared for wrath. And it's a passive voice. 
which in the Greek can be also reflex, prepare themselves. They have been prepared. This is the damaged part from that Jeremiah 18 illustration. Now, it says in verse 24, or verse 23 rather, that his glory upon vessels of mercy, which there's the verb again, prepare, but now what voice is it? Active or passive? Active. So over here, we have prepare, not prepared. God does the preparing. The vessels here, the subject is left out. See, the subject in an indefinite verb or passive voice, you have to kind of think about who's, who's doing the acting here. It's very strong and clear that God prepares the uh, ones be, that he prepared beforehand to glory, the vessels of mercy. But the other verb isn't, doesn't share that power. And what we have here is something you will observe time and again in Scripture. We'll see it again at the Exodus event where there's an asymmetry about God's sovereignty that, is, that somehow tells us something. Here's God's sovereignty. He controls good and he controls evil. But his control over the good is different than his control over evil. He doesn't go into a lot of details, but there's an asymmetry here. It's not the same. And the, the Bible has various ways of telling us this. Through verb tenses, uh, voices of the verb... Uh, there's another famous one, the Ten Commandments. I am the God who shows, uh, who visits the sin of the fathers unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. But then it goes immediately and turns around, and I visit the blessing on the thousands of generations of them that love me. And so there's, again, this, this difference that goes on. Saying that God, in his active desire of his heart, is to bless. But that he is sovereign, and he will leave that which has become uh, foul, become disorganized, become rebellious, he will often leave it in its state of rebellion. If you want another glimpse of this, uh, hold, um, do I want to hold the place? No. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. That's the uh, fifth book from the front of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And it's a comment on what's going on here as he pulls Abraham out of the pagan world. This is a mosaic, mo, uh, mosaic commentary on it. And he says, and I want you to notice how he talks about his elect nation versus the unelect nations. Because the concept is the same, even though here it's nations and Abraham's day was a family. In, in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 4, he's warning them not to worship the creation with idols. And he says, Beware lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of them, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God, now notice this clause, which your God has allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of Egypt. See, there's the picture of the clay all screwed up. And what God does, He reaches down and He redoes. But when He redoes, He doesn't redo all of it. So the second element in this doctrine of election is that it has in, in the background of the imagery of election is a fall has happened. God isn't obligated to do anything. <clears throat> but he, he reaches down and he calls people like Abraham out. All right, let's go on the notes on page 32. The third point, uh, and in the New Testament, you'll come over to Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews 11, of course, is the great chapter on faith, and we'll talk more about faith later. But the third thing about election that I would like to communicate tonight is election, when it happens in history, is a revelation. It's a revelation never before seen, nor being able to be predicted. It is a surprise event. So that what you have in the call of Abraham, you diagrammed it on a timeline, it would look like this. You'd have Nahor, Terah, Abraham. Abraham lives in the city of Ur. And then all of a sudden the call comes. And now Abraham leaves and he starts his own pathway. At that very moment when the call of Abraham comes, there is revealed now the election of God. It was not there before. Nor could it have been predicted. There's nothing inside history whereby you can predict what God is going to do. This is a surprise event. Sort of like happens in the atom now. The the problem with the quantum theory where you suddenly have, for no reason, rhyme or reason, all of a sudden you have this change of state. can't predict it. It just is there. So, in history it's the same thing. When you have this thing, it's a surprise event. That has implications. And the implications for our faith are quite profound because in Hebrews 11, in verse 3, we have the statement that history is ultimately unpredictable. And this, by the way, is an argument why science will never be able to write a history. Science presupposes predictability. It presupposes that events at T plus 1 are the same inherent physics as at T. And that, that is an assumption. It can't be proved. That's assumed. And then after we assume it, then we predict it. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, we say, By faith we understand the ages were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things which are visible. In other words, the steering wheel of history is outside of history. And we have constantly surprised, time after time, with the hand of God as he works in our lives. Carry on this further, down a few verses. Look at what the author of Hebrews says about Abraham in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he, which he was to receive for inheritance, and he went out, and look at the last clause in verse 8. Look at the last clause. Not knowing. Not knowing. Was Abraham, therefore, not knowing insecure? What did Abraham know? That tells us what he didn't know. What did he know? He knew that the God of the universe was there and the God of the universe was calling him and that sufficed for his knowledge base. He knew those. He could do the other. But in all reality, the Bible tells us, we don't know a lot about what's going on. And the key is visualizing Abraham as a businessman. Any person that runs an office, runs a business, can put yourself into Abraham's position. How would you like somebody, God, to call you you're going to move your business to some place, and I'll show you where. That doesn't really give you a sense of comfort. That is a big disruption to be, be it facing that. But that's what faith is. An election is this sudden intervention in our lives, this call that comes in. That's what we want to see about that election is always a surprise event. Okay, the final, on page 33... This is the comforting side of it. Abraham didn't know. 
but he did know the one who called him. Now we want to um, look at that first paragraph under point four. In Abraham's case, all th- uh, or let's read the underline first. Election is God's basic eternal promise to you and me. In Abraham's case, all three of the promises, land, seed, and worldwide blessing, were still future when God called. A very important implication of election is that every other promise make, uh, every other promise God makes to his elect is contained already in his election promise. God's promise to provide a child to Abraham, God's promise to protect Sarah to Abraham, that was all wrapped up in the original call. If the final state of the elect is promised, then every need leading to the final state must also be promised. And now we're going to turn how Jesus deduced the entire doctrine of resurrection from the Abrahamic covenant. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. This was a stunning thing that Jesus did. But if Jesus did this, it's a model of how to reason from the basis of the word of God. Now the doctrine of resurrection is not clear in the Old Testament. Start right there. Obviously, the doctrine of resurrection is very clear in the New Testament because Jesus rose from the dead. But Jesus kept insisting that resurrection was predicted in the Old Testament. Now, there's only one passage in the Old Testament that talks about resurrection clearly, and that's in Daniel. But interestingly, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, when the Pharisees had an argument with the Sadducees about resurrection, In verse 30, Jesus starts to discuss, uh, verse 29, discuss resurrection. He says, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. So, he's challenging their interpretation. He says, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? So now he pins them down to an Old Testament passage. You guys should have known about resurrection. Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, what on earth does that have to do with the resurrection? Can anybody see the inference? This is not first glance, spin through, easy to see here. Well, let me try to, to show you what Jesus apparently is doing with this passage. And it's, um, it was a surprise to the people of his day. And what it is to us, it shows us how serious Jesus took every word of Scripture. What Jesus is saying is, there was the covenant promise. What was the covenant promise to Abraham? It was the land, the seed, and the worldwide blessing. Now, remember we said each one of these has a temporal fulfillment and an eternal fulfillment? that this land wasn't just the land of Israel in in his day. It was also to be the eternal temple of God, the new Jerusalem. The seed wasn't just to be Isaac. It was to terminate in the eternal one, the God-man Messiah. The worldwide blessing was to ultimately be the worldwide kingdom of God. So all these pointed to the future. Now, did Abraham live forever? No. Abraham on a timeline looked like that and he was dead. So now the question is, if Abraham died here, how do these promises pertain to Abraham? Well, you could say, well, Abraham in his spirit, Abraham in his soul, after he died, 
he was blessed. But this isn't talking about soul. This is talking about a land. Land is physical. So how is Abraham going to receive this promise if he doesn't have a body to receive it in? And he says, God is of the life. And life in the Hebrew means body plus soul, not just soul. Body plus soul. So, God is the God of the living, and He makes His promises. Therefore, if Abraham died, Abraham must rise again from the dead. And he expected, and this is kind of the awesome, because I wouldn't have inferred that. Maybe if he banged me over the head, it made me think about it a little bit, I might. But he expected people to be able to look at the Abrahamic covenant and deduce resurrection from it. Pretty tall order, don't you think? And he didn't rely on Daniel to prove the doctrine of the resurrection. He relied on the Abrahamic covenant to to prove the whole doctrine of resurrection. And he said, you you read that? You should have understood it. Why are you arguing about resurrection? It's all cleared up in the Abrahamic covenant. Well, maybe it was to him, but for most of us, we have to think about that one, don't we? And it gives a serious pause to the fact that when we look at these scriptures, there's a lot more in them then we're willing to give them on first or second or third or even fifth readings. All right, we covered tonight, again, in, in quick form, the issue of election. And I want to conclude, um, and I'm running over two minutes over, but I apologize. In verse, on uh, page 33, that last paragraph under election, because this is the, why this doctrine is so important in our Christian life, Election is basic to all else in the Christian life. Contrary to Arminian claims, those are people who believe you can lose your salvation, we must begin our new life in Christ knowing our election, that our names are written in the book of life. There are some verses to prove it. Without this assurance, we can never truly claim any of God's promises because we can never be sure they're addressed to us. Knowing that God has called us and works in us to will and do of his good pleasure must precede our faith walk. Okay? So election is wrapped up with the fact that we can be confident, we can be certain, we can be sure of God's plan. And it's a marvelous source of, of blessing. And this is why Romans 8 and Romans 12 is written that way. Paul wants us to be sure that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Talking about election. Most famous promises of all the Christian life has election embedded in it. So that's why. Uh, The call of Abraham should be a picture to us the fact that Abraham did not know the land. He did not know the child. He did not know how he would be a blessing. But he did know. God called him. And he acted accordingly. And that's what God wants us to do with election. I call you and I expect you to respond to my call. And later as we walk down the path together, I'll show you this and I'll show you that and I'll show you some more stuff. But I'm not going to show you the whole roadmap right now. You have to trust me that I, I have the map. You just follow me. And that's very frustrating because I'm the kind of guy, I want to see the map first. Then I'll decide whether I want to go on this trip. I want everything laid out first so, so I can decide. But you see, God's designed our lives so that if we act that way, we can't operate. He's deliberately structured it so we have to believe. Father, we thank you for this time together in the Word. And we pray that you would grow the content of truth, the awareness of the truth, and the clarity of the truth in our hearts. As we go through life and we receive the storms and the obstacles and the confusion, um, we need to be called anew to looking at you 
not knowing exactly what is going to happen tomorrow, but knowing that you have designed tomorrow in all of its details. We thank you now that we have you as such a God who is sovereign over all. In Christ's name, amen. This time we're going to deal with the doctrine of justification. And if you look at that, please, and look at Romans 4, because next week it's going to be kind of a little tough if you have to come from a Roman Catholic background, because we're going to deal with the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. It's here where the water uh, is shed, the watershed happens, because this is the Protestant Reformation, what it's all about. We want to be careful, because Roman Catholicism does not believe what some Protestants maliciously tell it. You hear Protestants often say Catholics believe in justification by works. Catholics do not believe in justification by works, and you can prove it by their own catechism. So we have to be careful that we be truthful to depict what Romanism say and says. On the other hand, we want to show you what Luther and Calvin discovered that launched the whole Reformation and why today in our evangelical circles we're in great danger of going back to Rome by the way we're preaching the gospel. And so... The doctrine of justification is very, very important. So please read those notes. Those who want to stay on here for 15 minutes or so, um, tonight was a very hasty survey of a very difficult area, so I probably stirred up more questions than I answered, but um, I'm here so you can take some shots if you want. Yes, Bill. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't finish it. The answer to the analog on God's side to our conscience is His holiness, or described sometimes as His righteousness or His justice. The analog on God's side for love is love. Analog on God's side for um, knowledge is omniscience. Those attributes are key, and the reason why I mention those four is because it, it's, it, those four turn out to be requirements for all of life, for man, and if you take God away, then they collapse. And it's exactly what we're seeing, because man has to come up with a substitute. Man has to substitute some sort of a base for choice, conscience, love, and knowledge. And that's where we as Christians can counterattack. In other words, the, the pagan mind is very arrogant and it looks upon us as the, the weaklings and we have to rely on faith and blah, 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 blah. And they're the people to be pitied because here they are trying to build a doctrine of choice and all they've got is chemistry. They're trying to build a doctrine of conscience and rights and they don't have any source for them. They're trying to build an atmosphere where people can love one another when ultimately there's insecurity. And they're trying to build knowledge without any prior knowledge, without any absolute controls, absolute standards of truth. So really the pagan is to be sadly pitied. And the Bible's term for the destruction of those four things is a technical term that occurs throughout the book of Ecclesiastes called vanity. And when you see that word in the New Testament, you want to be careful because... If you read it like I did for many years, you just kind of read it over. 
um, is, is quick. Um, if, if you've done some reading in Christian classics, you know Pilgrim's Progress, and you remember Vanity Fair. And all I remember was growing up, my mother had there was a thing called Vanity Fair, cosmetic thing or something. And so, but when I became a Christian, I realized what that's talking about is talking about Vanity Fair is this a pagan air. Vanity is the, is the idea of lack of substance. It's sort of like in James, you, what is your life but a vapor that passes away like that on a cold morning? It looks like it has space and substance, but it turns out not to have anything it's like cotton candy. So that's the flavor of the word vanity. And fair is the old English word for beauty. And vanity fair in Pilgrim's Progress meant that there's this, this attractive... Uh, paganism is attractive. I mean, it wouldn't be a temptation if it wasn't too attractive. So it's an attractive vanity. And, and uh, this is why it seduces people. Because it is attractive. Um, so the collapse of those four things is basically vanity and that's what Solomon means when he goes over and over all is vanity all is vanity he says I had this I had that I had this I did this experiment I did that I bought this I bought that and I tried to build my business and I had security and blah 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 and it's all vanity and people think what went wrong with Solomon well it was that he did all the experiments he tried everything and he had the means of trying, and he had the brilliance most of us don't. None of us do. Solomon probably was one of the most brilliant men who ever walked the face of the planet. He was probably on a par with Leonardo da Vinci. All you have to do is read a book of Ecclesiastes and write down on a scratch pad every area that guy did experiments in. He was in botany. He was in math. He was in physics. He was in engineering. Uh, he experimented with a thousand times with marriage. That would warn anybody out. And, and he went on and on from one area after another with all this. And his conclusion is that it's all vanity. So um, that's what we're trying to get at here is so that we as Christians don't become paranoid. We don't have to be paranoid. The other people ought to be paranoid. They're the ones that don't have any substance. And we ought to start telling them that when they arrogantly deny they need Jesus Christ. What do you mean you don't need Jesus Christ? You don't even have an idea of truth or knowledge or anything else. Tell me you don't need Jesus Christ. Give me that stuff. Now, I was born in the morning, but it wasn't yesterday morning. Come on. And that's the way we ought to handle the, that kind of arrogance. I ought to call it for what it is. Graciously, but nevertheless pointedly. Any other um, discussion? Yes, Debbie. question. And that is wrapped up with the fact that in Noah's time, a good way of looking at that is that you have to keep in mind that election is a, is a part of God's sovereign control. And when God, we're talking sovereignty here, he never absolves or destroys in somehow in the process human responsibility. And if you want to think about Noah and think about he called Noah and his family, he also preached the entire world for 120 years. 
So no person who is um, who winds up as an unbeliever can ever argue that they are in unbelief because of election, being not elected. They, the condemnation in John is uh, they have not believed, and they, their, their condemnation is they have not believed. Believe what? Believe what they knew of the Word of God that had come to them. And that's why we have to be so careful, because hyper-Calvinism gets hold of this and, and destroys it. That's why I, I didn't have time tonight, but one, one of the things, maybe I can draw this diagram that's helped me think that through. Because uh, for a time, I had some people that were intent on becoming hyper-Calvinists, and they almost took over the campus of Dallas Seminary at one time. And they even came out with a statement that said, uh, gee, if I knew who the non-elect were, I wouldn't bother and witness to them. Now, that is the ultimate stupid extrapolation of this. And the way to think about it has helped me is to think of the fact, and this is time going this way, and think of God's existence up here and history down here. God in his mind has always understood who the elects are and who the non-elect are. Obviously, because he's omniscient. But in history... I made, what I tried to do is make the point that the elect do not come into existence until the gospel is preached and they believe. So if this X represents the gospel witness of somebody sharing the gospel, this is the person believing, that's the point where the elect, elect ones exist. They don't even exist prior to that point. Now, they exist in God's mind, but so the universe existed in God's mind before creation, didn't it? But it didn't exist until God created it. And if you get this idea here, what it does, it means that every time you witness, or I witness, or we share the gospel, it means that that sharing of the gospel, that evangelism, is the very means that is being used to create the elect. The elect are never conceived as elect. You don't have to have the spectacle in the Bible of unbelieving elect people. It's not there. Elect are already in Christ. We share Christ's election. And we're believers. But you don't ever, in Scripture, ever see the elect identified, running around in an, in an unbelieving state. They're always, the term is always reserved for post-belief. And that means that this act right here of, of witnessing that call that comes through the gospel is not an impotent sorting device. And that's why hyper-Calvinism historically has been very weak evangelistically. That's what happened to the Reformation. That's what happened to the Puritans. They went down because they never had a vigorous evangelism. And the reason they never had a vigorous evangelism, they didn't evangelize their kids. And, and what happened was they lost it. Here they were, they had created one of the most vibrant Christian civilizations known to man, and they lost it in two generations. And it was because it was a defect in their doctrine. Their doctrine made this gospel witness really unnecessary because, after all, I mean, the elect are going to find them. They're going to believe. I mean, we don't have to help them. They're going to just do it themselves. That's wrong. The elect are called into existence by the gospel. And that's why, I forget where the verse is, but it's in, the, it's in one of the gospels, or it's in Paul's epistle, where we cause condemnation and we cause life we're saviors of death and we're saviors of life 
what he's saying is that when, the, when you evangelize somebody, you're pushing the envelope. Because what it means is, is that here the gospel, bang, comes into somebody's heart. And they, if they believe, what has happened is you had regeneration. Here you have an elect creation. But on the other hand, if they keep rejecting, 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 every time they hear the gospel, the gospel is hardening their hearts. So the gospel evangelism does two things, not one. It not only creates the elect, but it damns those who do not believe. And that's the, uh, that's the tragedy, human tragedy, of a church that preaches the Word of God. Because people can come into this auditorium and other Bible-believing churches and hear the Word of God and hear the Word of God and hear the Word of God and not act on it and not act on it. And finally, they, they, the hearts get hardened. And then you have some big blow-up in the church or they go off and do some stupid thing. Oh, gee, look at the hypocrites in the church. Oh, they were there every Sunday. Yeah, but what was going on here? That's the point. So, the gospel preaching is tied to your question. And the question about God not willing that, he repents, that everyone repents, that is. But clearly, he has designed history in which people don't all repent. And the question is why? How do we get those two things together? Well, if you're successful at doing that, write a book. Because no one has, tried, no one has ever gotten those two together in history. We just told to a witness to everyone because that's God's desire. And we're told also that there are those who from before the foundation of the world were chosen in Christ. In other words, if you can look at it another way, God knew where history was going to go before he started it. Anything else? Any other questions? Everybody's tired. Okay. No, Abraham wasn't elect before he was called. All I'm saying is that, no, the doctrine of election is, was implicit in the Bible. But what I've done on this series, D, is I, I, I went through every speech in the Bible, from Joshua, Moses, Stephen, and I built a graph. And I graphed the events that these guys kept talking about. And that's how I arrived at this set of events. So the set of events were distilled out of biblical speeches. So I figured if the whole, these guys, when they did their pretty long sermons, were emphasizing these events, and I ought to emphasize these events. And then I said, okay, I got, you know, the, say 20 different events out of the Bible. Then I said, if you look in the speeches, or you look in the discussions of the New Testament, how do they handle, what's the, what do they talk about when they talk about that event? What does that event show them? And clearly in this event, the call of Abraham, election is being shown. In a way... Not true of other events. Because when Paul goes to expound the doctrine of election in Romans 9, 10, 11, he doesn't talk about Noah. He doesn't talk about Moses. But he talks about Abraham. So it must be that that call of Abraham is the clearest picture of election. Not that it didn't occur before it. Okay? All right. We're out before 9.